welcome to the Way of Oneness. Hi everyone, I'm Christopher Kakuyo-sensei, and I'm a sensei of the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship. We are an independent, transsectarian, all-inclusive American Sangha in the Mahayana tradition. The Way of Oneness podcast is a collection of our Dharma talks, delivered at our Salt Lake City Fellowship Sangha. Enjoy the Dharma talk. So, for today's Dharma talk, I'm going to start out with one of the most famous uh, Zen koans. Attention, Master Dizang asks Bayan, Where have you come from? Bayan replies, I pilgrimage aimlessly. What is the purpose of your pilgrimage? asks Dizang. I don't know replies Bayan. Not knowing is the most intimate, remarked Daizang. At that, Bayan experiences great enlightenment. Not knowing is the most intimate. This line is the heart of Zen teaching, as Norman Fleischer, of the once the once abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, has said and the central point of many teachers' practice. Well, what does this mean? Now, traditionally, koans are riddles that you have to discover and answer beyond simple rational and logical thinking. And what we're going to share today is not that, um, because I don't claim to be a Zen master. But what I'm sharing with you is a simple awakened insight from my own studentship from me trying to see how I've applied this idea to my everyday life. So first, what I want us to do is to look at what it means to be intimate with someone or something. What does it mean to be intimate? Good. What else? What does it mean to be intimate? Present. Connected. Authentic. I like that. Just throw crap out there. No right or wrong answers. <laughs> Honest. <laughs> Truthful. Naked. Naked. I like that. Yeah. Sharing. Sharing. <laughs> Close. Okay. Good. Accepting. Accepting. Personal. Understanding. Understanding, emotional. Yeah, all these elements are, are part and parcel of this thing we call intimacy. Okay? Also, there's an aspect of intimacy, too. It's, it's, it's physical, too. Okay? And I'm not talking about sex. Because sex can be intimate and sex can be the absolute opposite of intimate. Okay? But what's more intimate than our breath? Sitting in meditation, sitting with our breath, is the most intimate thing we can do with ourselves. So that's the other thing you're thinking of right now. <laughs> that's close. That is as close to our very existence. Every breath we take, we touch the ineffable. I don't breathe. Try not breathing. 
doesn't work so well. Unless you're two. Then you get to be blue. <laughs> Pure stubbornness. The origin of intimate, the word intimate, is from the Latin intimus, which means inmost, innermost, deepest. Also from intimatus, which means closely acquainted, very familiar, almost intrinsic. Intimate is a part of your very being, where there is this fine line of separation. That which is intimate is that which is closest to us. And how close? The deepest, innermost part of ourselves and our experiences. That which is intimate is that with which we are very familiar, which is a part of who we are. I think also implied in intimacy is a certain level, a certain willingness, as Terry said, to be vulnerable. As I've shared before, because of disappointment, suffering, and emotional exhaustion, many of us live our lives in our own self-imposed, solitary confinement. We walk around on the outside, but on the inside, we are securely locked in our solitary cell. And to come out, to be intimate with life, means that we need to be vulnerable again and take the chance of being hurt. And that can be terrifying and paralyzing. But as the writer Richard Bach has written, the opposite of lonely is not togetherness, it's intimacy. So, what are some of the things that get in the way of intimacy? Fear. Fear. Judgment. Judgment. Anger. Anger. Attachment. Attachment. Delusion. Delusion. Expectation. Expectation. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Hate. Uh-huh. Shame. Shame. Okay. How does knowing get in the way of intimacy? Doesn't let you be open. Do what? It doesn't let you be open. Doesn't let you be open. Good. Stop what? Stop listening. You stop listening. What else? You force things to be a certain way. You force things to be a certain way. We talk about that all the time in our fellowship. We're constantly arguing with reality. Because we want it to be the way we know it should be. Right? So this kind of knowing, this closed off knowing that, that we don't need to listen, we don't need to ask questions because we know is called a trap of knowing. What do you think it means by a trap of knowing? We know, how can we learn? Yeah. And what is, I mean, what is a trap? If you're trapped in something, you're stuck. Locked in. Any concept that we have of the world becomes our trap. Absolutely. And and have you ever, I mean, we all know about our brothers and sisters, the wolves, chewing off their own leg to be free. How many of us are willing to do that? We're not willing to even put the remote control down, for God's sake. <laughs> right? 
Part of being human in a constantly changing and dynamic world is that we are endlessly and hopelessly seeking out certainty. We want security, but we go about it, we go about seeking it in a world that cannot give us fixed, stable, unchanging security. It's not at the heart of our existence. The small ego constantly is trying to find this security, this assurity, this certainty. And the more unchanging, the, the more changing the world is, the more we want that certainty. Look at our world now. Globally, look at our world now. We are at such a crux of change, such a dynamic unfolding of a new world in so many ways, and a world being threatened by its very extinction, for humans, that is. Um, everybody else will figure it out and live fine. Yeah. Adapt. <laughs> what happens in those times? We see the rise of fundamentalism. Because fundamentalism gives you this sense of certainty. Because I'm scared in this, I'm this changing world. Because of this, certainty is prioritized above all other things. Now, on an everyday level, we all do this. We all do it. I do it constantly. Just observe your mind when you interact with your friends, families, lovers. We know for certain their motives, thoughts, and feelings. Oh, we know. And we tell everybody about them. <laughs> we are so willing to share that knowledge with whoever will listen. Canley only does that because she's always, uh, because she always thinks X. Or my dad only did that because he feels guilty for Y. This is even more apparent in polarized political times. If I think, code word for no, that all Republicans are deep down fascist or that all Democrats are deep down socialist, my knowing gets in the way. Now, this may sound a little simplistic, but if we think this a little, just a little, it keeps us from spending time or interacting or getting to know the other. If I know you're a certain way, I don't need to listen. I don't need to interact with you because you're in that tribe and I'm in this tribe and neither the twain shall meet. Because if we do, we would die or something. Now, I appreciate this quote from Mika Korhonen, where she writes that knowing is one of the most pernicious mental traps. She says, in the state of knowing, we feel satisfied. It is like a complete puzzle with no pieces missing. We go around and ask questions until all the gaps are filled. If there are no pieces missing anymore, then there's no reason to go on searching. Everything is perfect. End quote. I know, therefore, I am done thinking. I am done asking questions. I am done learning. The knowing we are talking about here is the kind of knowing that gets in the way of intimacy with others, with ourselves with our lives and our practice. The path to intimacy isn't knowledge, but the invitation that comes from asking a question to understand another human being. The only way we can get to know someone or can get to know our lives is to start with, I don't know. So many times we pretend 
that we're trying to be intimate by asking questions. But we're just asking questions to validate or invalidate what we think about somebody. That's just adding to a story. That's not putting everything aside and go, I want to understand where you are coming from. I want to understand your experience. Not what I think it should be or what I think it is or what I might think it is or how smart I am. It's you being naked with me, sharing <laughs> your life. The only way we can get to know somebody is to start with, I don't know. For years, I told the story of my father in all its unflattering details. But I realized that I had no idea. I have no idea who my father really is. I still don't. Because true knowledge comes from being willing to see the other person beyond our stories of who they think they are. I do that now with my sister. I have very reasoned thoughts on why she did. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I have no idea because she hasn't told me. I haven't asked her. And this also applies not just to our interpersonal experiences, but it applies to our practice. When we think we know, with a capital K, what meditation is, what Buddhism is, what awakening is, what enlightenment is, who we are, we are cutting ourselves off from what is really there. We don't allow it to just manifest itself naturally, unhindered by all of our silly meddling. I don't know, but I think that's what Danzig means when he says to Fayan, not knowing is the most intimate. As Socrates taught, to know is to know you know nothing. That is the meaning of true knowledge. And I love this quote from Daniel J. Borstein. Quote, the greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. End quote. This not knowing... I'm referring to is not confusion or paralyzing doubt. When I say I don't know, I'm talking in the spirit of openness and curiosity, as in, I don't know, let's find out, or let's keep going and see what happens. It is the not knowing of faith. It's the not knowing that comes when, after being defeated time and time again, time and time again, as Josh Bartok from Boundless Ways Zen writes, quote, defeated by our lives, defeated by our minds, defeated by our spiritual practice, this then unfolds into a really profound and profoundly uncomfortable not knowing. This not knowing then gives way to a kind of receiving, a receiving of just this of this moment as it is, a receiving of Amida Buddha's compassion, a receiving of ourselves. End quote. 
And I think that's a really important uh, passage because intimacy is a two-way experience. You can't give intimacy without receiving intimacy. It's not possible. They are inseparable. They are non-dual. Intimacy is giving and receiving. Not knowing, the spirit of not knowing is also as Suzuki Roshi wrote in Beginner's Mind, Zen Mind. He said, quote, with beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert mind, there are few. Beginner's mind is the essence of not knowing. Not knowing is also the embrace of the joy of unlearning. How many, all of us in here have probably unlearned a whole bunch of crap. Okay? Especially if we've left a different tradition. We have had to unlearn a lot of programming. But that's also part of our culture. Also, we inherit a societal karma. We are raised within a, a, a cultural melu, a cultural environment that seeps into us. And we need to unlearn that. We may need to unlearn stories about ourselves that we've told about ourselves, such as we're unworthy or unlovable or that we have to earn love. We unlearn these all the time. And not knowing is the joy of unlearning, not just the joy of learning. I love this from Gareth Young from the Ray Clay Sangha. He writes, I am finding that I am unlearning more every day and am more aware of each person I meet as beautiful, radiant manifestation of the same reality that manifests me, not different and not the same. End quote. Ah, and here is intimacy manifest. Contemplation, meditation, mindfulness, in body, mind, and heart. These are doors to intimacy, not just to ourselves, but with the world around us. And I love this from A. Hillman. And I'm going to post the link uh, where this comes from because it's a beautiful essay. Quote, The more we tune to our core, the more our boundaries widen and melt. We begin to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves. We let go of our hold on what we think we know and tremble as the energy of the unknown rises within us. We stumble on the lair of a wild creature in our bowels. Our kinship with the grasses and hills grows and beasts of the forest and sowing birds of prey acknowledge their counterpart in us. The whole world enters as if through our pores. Shining threads of light spun across chasms of separateness. Love coheres. It is an energy that unites. Love joins us to the mysterious dimension of one. This intimate communion leaves us wide open and exquisitely sensitive to presence. 
inside and out. End quote. I've printed up this, this passage and I've laid it on my meditation cushion. As Dogen taught, the father of Japanese Zen, enlightenment is intimacy with all things. And not knowing is how we open up ourselves to intimacy. So how can we cultivate the non-dual spirit of I don't know? The first thing is to simply be willing to not know. What a profound and honest statement to be able to say when somebody asks you questions, I don't know. Because most of the time, we're pulling shit out of our ass. <laughs> or we're polishing off what we once did and never actually did. We're polishing off our advice to ourselves that we never do and giving it to somebody else as if though it's brand new. <laughs> We let go of the need to know. I have found that the world is lighter when I free myself of having to know. I am more patient, less stressed, open. Here are two concrete things that we can do to cultivate not knowing. The first practice is suggested by the Buddhist teacher Gil Fransdell, and is to attach I don't know to as many thoughts as possible. It's really a trip. It almost comes a mantra, a very good mantra. For example, when thoughts arise like this is good or that is bad or I can't handle this, these become, I don't know if this is good or I don't know if this is bad or I don't know if I can't handle this. Huh? As he says, the phrase I don't know questions the authority of everything we think. It allows us to be free of fixed ideas. It can create curiosity, allow openness to creativity. He goes on to say that this simple phrase can help us challenge tightly held beliefs and can pull the rug out from under our most cherished belief. Not knowing opens the world to us, makes a way for us to be compassionate, patient, kind, honest, and help us cultivate equanimity. The last thing that we can do to cultivate the essence of I don't know is bowing. Now, for us Westerners, bowing is an odd, weird kind of sort of thing. Okay? And for some of us, we really like it. We go to Thailand, everybody bows, and we all like it. We come back here, we start doing that. People look at us like, what's wrong? Did you just come back to Thailand? What's wrong with you? Um, but there is a beauty in it. In yoga, namaste. The divine in me sees the divine in you. In Buddhism, the, the Buddha nature in me sees the Buddha nature in you. Okay? And I like, I, I like this from James Ishmael Ford. He says, not knowing, this is the ancient spiritual practice of bowing in a nutshell. The bow suggests, or I suggest, that's what he's saying, can open our hearts can take us places where we never dreamt of to a tangible, transformative, endless world of possibility called not knowing. I want to underscore this is not knowing has an endless creative possibility. 
To throw in another metaphor, one or two just aren't enough for this place. The moment we surrender to not knowing, when we bow to life as it is, in gratitude, we discover as well an apparently bottomless, bubbling, life-giving waters. We've been talking about this in our Dharma talks the past couple of Sundays. Engaging with life as it is. Come as you are. Come as you are is not just an invitation to us, but it's our invitation to our lives, to all the aspect of our lives. From our divorce, from our breakup, our illness, our aging, our crazy kids. We bow and we're engaged with it. There's a Japanese psychiatrist named Shoma Morita, and one of his, um, the woman who worked with him for years as a secretary and researcher, said the thing I loved about him is he didn't treat any aspect of his life any different. Everything he gave the same attention to. Everything. Taking a shower, cooking food, mowing the lawn, studying, crying, laughing. All these we attend to with our whole hearts, with our whole beings, intimately. So in closing, I raise my hand in gasho and bow to each of you. May we be like Fayan and are not knowing and through or not knowing, experience great enlightenment. Namo Amida May the merit of this ceremony adorn the Buddhist pure lands, bring forth the fourfold kindnesses, and relieve the suffering of life's paths. As we leave and conclude this gathering, we surround all people and all forms of life with infinite love and compassion. May the sound of this bell ring throughout the universe, awakening all beings to joy and equanimity. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings awaken to the light of Amida Buddha. May all beings be free. Namo Amida Buddha. Namo Amida Buddha. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The Way of Oneness is produced by the Salt Lake City Buddhist Fellowship, an all-inclusive, transsectarian American Sangha in the spirit of Bright Dawn Way of Oneness Buddhism. To learn more about the fellowship, please contact us at saltlakebuddhist.org. Our website will give information about meetings and other services that we provide the community. Again, thank you for listening.